Hey everyone, I'm Dr. Kelly Starrett. And I'm Juliette Starrett. And you're listening to the Ready State Podcast. You got it! You better stop it! This episode of the Ready State Podcast is brought to you by Momentus. We have a little bit different take this time on Momentus. The two things we're going to talk about, you're going to hear from the mouths of our guest on this podcast, Dr. Stacey Sims. And when we asked her, was there something you wish you could have taken earlier? And she actually brought this up even before that. And it was collagen and creatine. Look, there are, and she's like, you need to give to your kids. So uh, two things that we are so strongly uh, believing in in our house, and we add collagen and creatine. I add, I add it to my kids' pancakes. I put it in my coffee. And as I've gotten older, approaching 49 years old here, I'll tell you that I'm mini obsessed with my connective tissue. Like, I think it's all about connective tissue. Well, and we take collagen before we work out every morning, and it's a huge part of our routine, and now part of our kids' routine, because we feel like it's the secret weapon. Yeah, you know, even looking at, you know, maintaining the ability to keep yourself knitted together, gut health, the surfaces of your joints, that collagen is a big deal. Even with Caroline exercising right now, our daughter is just crested over 5'9", she's like 5'9 and a half, and she's grown an inch in like three months. And everything hurts because she's growing so much. Guess what that needs to connect? Collagen. Let me say it again. Two things that I think you should add into your diet today and do not mess about, collagen and creatine. You can get both of those awesome products from Momentus. Check out thereadystate.com slash Momentus and use code TRS for 20% off your first purchase. This episode of The Ready State is brought to you by Virtual Mobility Coach. This may sound crazy, but last year, I kind of tried to clone my husband. Awesome. Only kind of, though. You see, Kelly gets dozens of requests every day for help. And even though he wants to give everyone his personal attention, there just aren't enough hours in the day. So I typed in how to clone a human being into Google. Just kidding. But in seriousness, what we did do was create our virtual mobility coach platform. It's like having a virtual Kelly Star ad in your pocket. Which obviously everyone needs. I mean, that's right. I personally create over 600 mobility protocols for the virtual mobility coach. So the platform can help you with almost any movement problem imaginable. For example, let's say you're in pain. The VMC will show you a diagram of the human body. All you have to do is click where it hurts. And from there, we'll serve you up a customized pain prescription we call Mobility RX. The virtual mobility coach can also help you warm up and cool down when you exercise. Every day, we provide fresh pre and post workout mobilizations for more than four dozen sports and movements. Plus, on your days off, we even have a video called Daily Maintenance to help you relax and recover so you can get back 100% in record time. And best of all, right now you can try Virtual Mobility Coach free for two whole weeks. So you can check out everything it has to offer without paying a penny. Claim your free 14-day trial of Virtual Mobility Coach now. Go to thereadystate.com slash free trial. That's thereadystate.com slash free trial. And we'll see you inside. We are very excited to welcome Dr. Stacy Sims back to the Ready State podcast. She is a forward-thinking international exercise physiologist and nutrition scientist who aims to revolutionize exercise, nutrition, and performance for women. We ran into Stacy over a decade ago working alongside solving some of the problems in the Tour de France and immediately recognized that she was onto something. And this was early talking about sex differences between men and women in sport. And she ended up going on to become the preeminent researcher and even wrote an incredible book about it called Roar. 
Roar is one of those books that like we have and give away. It's like one of our most gifted ROAR, one of the most gifted books that we give as a family and recommend it to every coach and friend. We know who works with any women athletes of any kind. She also did an amazing TEDx talk that you can find online called Women Are Not Small Men. I'm a huge fan of that. Of a lot of the coaches in our world, Stacy has impacted Juliet and I massively on our sort of personal behaviors in terms of how we hydrate, uh, separating our nutrition from our hydration to some of the behaviors that we do afterwards, even some of the ways that we try to supplement our sleep. Her new project is trying to take on the no space. And when I mean no space, like the vacuum, the dearth of information out there about women transitioning from sort of youth to post-menopause. Yeah. She's talking all about perimenopause and menopause, which is like a desert when it comes to helpful and actionable information out there for women. We think you're going to think that this conversation is probably one of the most important ones you've ever heard because there is a woman in your life, whether you like it or not, whether you believe it or not. And more importantly, for men, if you're listening, if you are a coach, you need to listen to this because you're going to run up to co- into coaching women in their 40s and 50s. And this is vital information, not only for your family, but for also for your practice. This is really one of the most useful podcasts I think we've ever recorded. Please enjoy Stacey Sims. Enjoy. Stacey Sims, welcome back to the Ready State Podcast. We think you are our first repeat guest, so we're so excited to have you. Thanks for having me. It's so good to see you. I miss you guys so much, and um, I'm excited to actually just be able to chat. Dear listener, let me just start by saying that there's this concept from that World War Z movie with Brad Pitt where it's the 10th person, where 10 people say the same thing, and then it's the 10th person who is obligated to go against and look at the hard data and say, we're missing something. It's the, their, their 10th person is the job to be the contrarian. And in the movie, that's why the Israelis were like, oh, they were ready for the zombies because it was the 10th person was like, oh, it's zombies. It's not something else. For me, you are one of the 10th person thinkers and one of the most influential people in my life. I was like, I'm land this plane. 10th person. Because you really have continued to influence the way I think about 50% of the people I interact with and in a way that no one else has. And, and, and for people listening, that's, I'm talking about 50% of the world is women. Awesome. It's probably more than that. So, I mean, there are like a thousand questions we have for you. And obviously you're writing a new book, which we have 10,000 more questions about. But I I just want to ask a few questions about things that are always on my mind, especially things that I talk with my neighborhood friends about Mm -hmm. related to pieces of advice that you've given me and things that I sort of bandy about in my own life and, and attribute to you. But the first thing is, I know people are obsessed with intermittent fasting. It may not be as hot as it was. Like maybe it was super 2020 hot and maybe now it's like warm. But um, this is definitely a question I get from a lot of people. Like, should I be intermittent fasting? Should I be intermittent fasting? And honestly, my response is, well, if you are a woman, there is literally zero research to show that it's helpful or good. You're probably not going to lose weight since that's probably your goal. And chances are it's going to mess you up. So I just wonder if you could share whether I'm still sharing the right information there and whether this is still a view you hold, but what's your current thinking, your 2022 thinking on intermittent fasting, especially for women? It hasn't changed. You're saying exactly the right thing. And I think what happens with the messaging is people think intermittent fasting is like the be all end all for longevity. And if you look at the exercise data versus the intermittent fasting data that's on general pop, 
the exercise data gives you the same longevity benefits that the intermittent fasting data does, but it's a stronger stress and your body adapts to that. So anyone who exercises, regardless if they're men or women, should really think about not intermittent fasting, especially if they're going to be training within that fasted window. But it's super, super important for women not to do that because women need more carbohydrate in order to be able to get anabolic signaling from lean mass development and to get the fitness adaptations that they're after. We're going to just call this whole podcast hashtag asking for a friend. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's really, we're going to go. Okay. Number two, uh, most second, most influential aspect of Stacey Sims. Um, I originally started working and kind of becoming Stacey Sims aware way back in 2010 around some of the Tour de France stuff. And you really changed how we thought and how I thought about not drinking my calories if I could avoid it mm-hmm. and treating my hydration separately than my nutrition. Do you still feel that way that we should, whenever we can, not drink our calories? Absolutely. Yep. Especially in sporting environment, right? Because we only have a small amount of carrying capacity for fluid and fluid is so super important to like keep thermoregulation going, keep muscle metabolism going. And a lot of the times when people are drinking their calories, that stuff just sits in the gut and it doesn't get absorbed. And then the carbohydrate comes in, but the fluid doesn't. We end up dehydrating because we have the fluid that comes into the gut to help reduce the pressure that those carbohydrates give. So it's like that effective dehydration and you don't have the ability to come back from dehydration as fast as you can coming back from low blood sugar. I do feel that in my sauna sometimes, like a little behind, and I'm like, holy moly, there's a little bit of a lag before I can replenish those those fluids that I've sweated out. Yes. Are you still asking for a friend? Because I have something. <laughs> no, we'll get there in a second. So this is a perfect place to say, the last time we touched base with you, you were working in a research capacity at a university in New Zealand, doing other things too. You're, mm-hmm. you're here uh, in San Francisco currently on an advisory panel kind of summit, but can you talk about what your day job is when you're not having TV shows about nutrition or getting people to go really fast in the world of athletics like biking? Can you talk about some, are you still at that same university? I have PhD students at that university, but I'm not actively teaching or researching for that university, but I have a point to with Auckland University of Technology, which is a really strong research university in sport and exercise science. And you were specializing in heat stress? Yep. Heat stress and sex differences, all that kind of stuff. Still, Still doing it, but just at a different university. I just wanted to bring it back to everyone that like where your day job is, is talking about exactly what we're talking about. That was my point. Yeah. Okay. I was like, where are you going? Okay. So this is, I still have um, another asking for a friend. Yeah. The other habit that I learned from you, which I have been pretty darn religious about since I learned it from you, which is I drink some, and we just talked about not drinking calories, but I drink a scoop of protein powder within 30 minutes of exercise. Honestly, I think maybe for me, because I really hate drinking water and I am probably dehydrated all the time, it's possible that one of the best benefits I get from it is that right after I work out, I get like a bottle full of water with some protein in it. So, I mean, it's possible that that has this sort of extra benefit, but is that still a thing? Because that's another piece of advice that I'm out there bandying about in the world Especially for women. And and just saying, well, not only this is what I do, but I do because Stacey Sims told me to do this. Am I still 2022 on the right track there? 
You are, you are. And the protein also helps rehydrate you because protein and amino acids help hydrate all body spaces, where sodium is just really plasma space. And women have more anabolic resistance, especially as they get older. So if you're really in the habit of getting that protein dose in really soon after exercise, then one, you're enhancing your body's ability for lean mass development, but two, you're stopping that breakdown state, that catabolic state. If we stay in the catabolic state, then our body perceives us as being in a low energy state. And if we have that low energy availability or that low energy state, then we can see thyroid dysfunction, endocrine dysfunction, putting on belly fat. And, you know, as we get older, that's something that can come on easily anyway. So we don't want to encourage it. So say we all. Sorry. And can I add to, is there any um, specific benefit for men doing this as well? Or should everybody do this? Is this like, like sort of best practices, drink some protein and would it- within... Would it also be some protein within 30 minutes or is it specifically the timing beneficial for women? Timing is more important for women. Men, if you're doing something that's completely fuel depleting, something like mountain biking or something, you totally burn through everything, then it's really beneficial. But if it's just resistance training or, you know, a short CrossFit type stuff, then if you've eaten before, your window is about two or so hours. You can delay eating till your next meal. That's for men. But for women, different story because we clear blood sugar and we don't rely very much on liver and muscle glycogen. So we rely on blood sugar and we rely on fatty acids. And so that's another stress on the body that brings cortisol up. So it's more important for women to time that nutrition than it is for men. We have run into, through the pandemic, lots of eating disorders mm-hmm. and lots of disordered eating, mm-hmm. um, especially among young people and particularly in a lot of young women in our lives. You were one of the first people who we'd heard of uh, the old school way of the triad, yeah. but you really had kind of refocused my brain around thinking of this as, I think you call it relative energy deficiency. Is that what yep. it is? Red S, yeah, relative energy deficiency in sport. In sport. Mm-hmm. Can you explain what that is and does that is that only about young women or does that work its way up the chain even into women in their 30s and 40s and 50s? It works its way up the chain and it also affects men. So the thing about relative energy deficiency, and we say in sport because it's really prevalent in sport, is you get into this aspect of not timing your nutrition well. So you end up in that breakdown state I was just talking about or you're not bringing in enough calories to fuel your training, to fuel your daily stress, and to fuel everything that your body needs to get through. And if you do that, then it's every system in the body becomes affected. So initially, it starts with endocrine dysfunction that we see with women, menstrual cycle dysfunction. For men, it's low testosterone. We see GI distress. We see increased um, blood lipids, a lot of LDL increases, cholesterol increases. We see a lot of vascular intolerance, so blood pressure issues, a lot of psychological disorders. So it becomes this big myriad that a lot of people go, oh, you're overtraining or you're highly stressed. But then it comes back down to you're not fueling your body appropriately. And if you don't have nutrition, you can't really be resilient to any kind of stress. So, you know, I just want to add to this. I mean, Kelly kind of alluded to it, but one of the populations, partly because I've got two teenage girls that I'm seeing this like in spades, especially because we have two teenage girls who are athletic and playing sports, is sort of people not like, you know, parents really struggling with like how to feed their kids, how to advise their kids around sport, 
how much to feed them. You know, in in some sports like kids soccer, the pendulum really swung the wrong way because people were like feeding their kids 600 calories at halftime and then donuts and Doritos afterwards, right? So, so there was like that pendulum swing that went that direction. But then, you know, it's interesting now that I have teenage girls, what I'm seeing is the opposite direction. That's like, you know, a lot of, I, I go to all these water polo tournaments, I see a lot of really weirdly timed eating, like kids not eating before a game and then definitely eating too much in between two games. And it's like, you know, what, what is, and, and, and then overall, a lot of girls in particular, just playing, not eating enough. Yeah. And I think having a lot of downstream impacts from that, but not being able to like make that connection, right? Like teenage girls seem to really struggle to make that low energy efficient, you know, low energy availability connection and sport performance. I mean, what would be like your top few pieces of advice to parents who are trying to, cause I know parents are struggling in navigating this. I have a friend whose daughter's like, neither one of them really feel like eating ever, but then they bonk in games, right? So yeah. it's like, and <laughs> she's, she's going like a cramp and bonk. So she's going crazy because she's like, knows their kids need to eat. But I don't know. I mean, what would, I realize that's super broad because it's obviously specific to certain kids and sports and whatever, but like what's sort of like the broad advice, like takeaway to parents, like how do we navigate this kids in sports and specifically girls in sports? Cause it's, I think exacerbated there. Yeah. Um, I see it as young as nine. Like my daughter's now nine. I can't believe it. But I see a lot of these things happening. You know, I don't want to eat. I don't want to eat in front of people. I have issues around eating. And so it's, it's endemic even at an early age. So what we found is using different language. So instead of parents saying, oh, you have to do this, you need to eat, you need to do that, we skew it and say, well, we want to fuel for performance. We want to fuel to have energy. We want to fuel so that the second half of the game, you're able to kick it and you know really nail. So we're bringing it all back in a positive scope to the performance. And if we just focus on that, then the mentality becomes instead of calories, it becomes fuel for performance. And the kids grab onto that. And then you can worry about the rest of nutrition in the day after they've nailed that concept, because then they become so focused on the positive benefits they feel when they're playing or when they're training and they can connect it back to, oh, I'm fueled for it. And parents and get really confused, like, oh, you got to eat breakfast. You have to um, take all this with you. You got to make sure you eat before a game. You have to make sure you eat after a game and practice and you get home late. And they're kind of micromanaging the nutrition around it. But if we just take that one conversation and change the language to a positive scope of performance and how you feel, then that becomes the big rock and the one stepping stone that really opens up the conversation for kids to become aware of what it means to have that nutrition on board to perform well. And parents never bring their own nutritional baggage into sports no. of their kids or body image at <laughs> oh, all. Oh, no, no. no. None never of that happened. at all. No. Never, um, never. I want to tell you, I want to give you an update. Yes. Stacy and I were at Naval Special Warfare doing a little talk there. And Stacy was in front of a lot. There were some generals there and some colonels and a lot of very smart people. And Stacy said, if you can't say the word period with your athletes or soldiers or people you're working with, the problem is you. You are yeah. the problem in the room. And everyone literally was like, kind of they give their like downturn face and they were like, like, she said the word period. It was such a great so moment. Like, awkward. Hi, one of the highlights of just watching, I turned and just stopped watching Stacey and just watched the room. It was great. Awesome. You then, one of the things that you put on my radar was Fitter Woman app, which I think you were a consultant on. Women's national soccer team, a way of women communicating and tracking where they are in their cycles with coaches, with parents, without having to have an overt conversation. Yeah. But I want to tell you about a young generation of kids where in my life, so 
I won't say their names, my daughter and one of her best friends driving in the car and just talking overtly about their periods and their cramps and where they were and how they were managing it with soccer and and sport and it's no big deal and and I was just like wow this that is, is awesome it has you know and I evolution because I have asked I always ask my girl my daughters uh, you know friends about where they are you know I mean I just try to de-destigmatize it you know awesome and it would to see that thing where they brought it up and I was like okay I'm just gonna be really quiet and really small in this car and just <laughs> listen to these women talking about this aspect of their of their physiology and just completely owning it. I was like Stacy Sims is winning the race slowly slowly but winning this winning. is awesome yeah which Okay, so you uh, do a ton of consulting, TV shows. Uh, your last book blew our minds and has become a resource that we've handed out a thousand times, Roar. And that, I don't know if that was one of your first books or just the last book that I was highly aware of. You're just about or in process of a new project. What is that project? It's a follow-up. So yes, Roar was the first one. And when we release it, um, didn't get a lot of traction until about a year after. But then the largest and loudest voice in that was the perimenopausal menopausal set. So, you know, the 40 onwards women that were like, hey, you only have one chapter, but there's so much more I want to know. And I still don't know what's going on with me because of that. And I kind of rolled with it because of what I was doing at Stanford, working with the Women's Health Initiative and working with that population. To me, I was like, why don't you know this? I, I don't understand why you don't know what's going on. And realized that it's it's worse to talk about menopause than it is to talk about your period. So the basis of this new book, Next Level, is all about the menopause transition, what's happening to the body, what's happening with the hormones. Um, we have a big chapter on alternatives to menopause hormone therapy or using menopause hormone therapy. So it really encompasses all of those questions. And then it dials down into training. How do you train? What is heavy lifting? Why should you do heavy lifting and polarized training? What does polarized training look like? So it, it goes after all of those questions that started circulating after war in this really rapidly rising active population. So I, I guess I, I'm going to have a lot of questions about this and continuing on with my asking for a friend. I am 100% self-diagnosed uh, perimenopausal at almost 49 years old in three weeks. But why is there such a dearth of information on this subject? Because I mean, there really isn't anything. And on top of that, it seems that even OBGYNs and physicians are like, totally useless. I mean, I have multiple close friends who went through really early menopause and like literally thought they were dying and, you know, like weren't sure what they were wrong with them, thought they had a terminal illness only to learn that they had gone through menopause and were done with it by age 45 and not a single physician was able to identify that that was what their problem was. Like, I mean, this isn't just one person I know. This is a lot of women are going through these struggles and some of them at an early, way earlier age than you'd expect. And like their physicians aren't picking up on it. And then there's no information out there. I mean, I was just sub, quick subtext. I wrote like a really not very awesome article on our blog about like how I'm preparing for menopause. And it's one of our most visited articles on the ready state. And it's like not our area of expertise. It is not really what we do. And for some reason, it's like, you know, hit uh, struck a chord because there's so little info out there. So anyway, that was a really long way of asking like, why is this why isn't there? I mean, you know, 50% of the population will go through this and it's a yeah. thing and yeah. they'll experience a lot of things. So why is there so and little men, info? Men would talk about it nonstop. 
Yeah, and also it's like men have to live with the women going through these I'm things. I'm not saying that. So I'm they just saying that know. if this happened to men, we'd be like, hey. Yeah, there'd be like a thousand books on yeah, it. That's what yeah, I meant. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. there'd be, Sorry, so let me, let me well, clarify. Yeah, yeah. We would wham our way right to the top. Well, and there'd be like a cure. You guys would already have a cure. Okay, there'd be so a cure for menopause if it were men. We've anyway, it up. Sorry. Take it away. So that's the first reason right there is the whole patriarchal upbringing of the medical community, right? So everything's viewed through the male lens. And if we talk about having a hard enough time getting research done properly in premenopausal women because of the menstrual cycle and hormone fluctuation, research stops at 40. Like the age cutoff for research for women is 40, evidently, because then it becomes really too difficult with all the hormone fluctuations that are going on, estrogen dominance, no progesterone, you know, short cycles, long cycles. And people are afraid to dive into that because the male lens of research and the way that research studies are set up through that male lens of let's be as short and tidy as possible instead of really trying to accommodate a woman in her life. We know that there's a lot of research post-menopause because this is where we see a drain on the healthcare system, right? All of a sudden, we have that uptick of obesity. We have an uptick of cardiovascular disease, metabolic syndrome, diabetes, and people are like, okay, what's going on? And that's why we have all of this post-menopause research in a sick population. But in the perimenopause, like people are like, shh, don't talk about it. Don't shh. And we looked at some of the um, research that does come out in that in active women, resistance trained women, and start to see what's happening from metabolic standpoint, what's happening from um, a muscle standpoint. And it's really compelling. So Amanda Gould and Abby Smith-Ryan of UNC Chapel Hill published a study maybe three weeks ago that specifically looked at what happens from a metabolic and a body comp standpoint and found that there's decreased um, metabolic flexibility. So women in perimenopause, they tend to rely primarily on carbohydrate throughout all intensities of exercise, whereas pre and postmenopausal, they have that flexibility to go from carbohydrate and fat and amino acids. And there's a really strong signaling for putting on visceral fat. And there's less of an anabolic signaling post-exercise, unless it's resistance training and unless it's high intensity. So we see this like conversation that physicians will say, oh, do 150 minutes of moderate intensity activity or go on the ketogenic diet. Why the ketogenic diet? Because there was one, maybe two papers that came out in a relatively sick, sick obese postmenopausal population that showed that the ketogenic diet worked. But now it makes the rounds through the medicine community or the medical community saying this is the be all end all for every woman that's experiencing the menopause transition or postmenopause. Physicians are not aware because it's out of their wheelhouse. Again, they have a hard enough time dealing with people who have menstrual cycle irregularities. What's their answer? Let's put you on an oral contraceptive pill. If you are perimenopausal and talking about heavy bleeds or light bleeds or change in menstrual cycle, they're like, well, maybe you should go on an IUD because you're not young enough. We don't want to put you on an OC, but let's put you on an IUD. That'll help fix you. But it's all about the hormonal fix instead of actually investigating what's going on. And when we really start to dig into the different sections, uh, like their fertility research and seeing what's happening there for women who want to have kids at an older age and really investigating what's happening with the hormones. And we're looking at cell research and the mechanisms of what happens with estrogen progesterone deficiency. And then we have whole body research that's slowly starting to come out. We get a really good picture, but it's not translated to the medical community because they're taught in classes that, you know, women might have some OBGYN issues, but that's 
for that specialty. It's not for GPs. So I'm really not surprised that your friends went through it and had no information and no help whatsoever. Who's doing the best in the all the aspects of research and developing a more cogent model to support especially performance through this. And when I say performance, lean muscle mass is about performance, body composition is about performance, VO2 max, all, all the markers of, of longevity and durability are also markers of performance. Mm-hmm. Who's doing a good job right now? Is this coming out of sports? Is, I mean, besides, <laughs> they, name three- Yours truly. Name three menopause uh, researchers, Kelly, go. Uh, Stacy Sims and- uh, <laughs> Stacy Sims, There's some Stacey women Sims. in U- University of North Carolina I found out just about like one minute ago. Yeah, those, yeah. Abby Smith Ryan is a really interesting woman in a good way. Like she does a lot of the supplement research that we know. So all the creatine stuff that's come out and the benefit for women, she's done that. She's around our age. And so she's really interested in the perimenopause. So we keep pushing for it. We're writing review papers on it. And we're, and so she's done some research on it. I'm doing research, but anyone else, they're all focused on premenopause because of the conversations that come up in that, which is great. I love it. But there's this huge population where I'm like, hey, there's only two of us that are doing the research here in the active population. Why don't we get more people involved? So I just I want to turn a little bit because you you mentioned it, but I, I want to talk about broadly about the exercise piece here, mm-hmm. you know, for perimenopausal, menopausal women or, you know, active women. How does that different than like what what should women really be thinking about that's different than say how they would train in their 30s? And then one side piece, what I see a lot of women doing that are my age is a ton of cardio and nothing else. And and I think the pandemic really exacerbated that because everybody got a Peloton and there were a lot of, I mean, I'm a huge fan of Pelotons and I think it like really helped people survive the Peloton, I mean, survive the pandemic. But sometimes I see it's only, that's the only thing, you know, people are able to say, okay, I can relate to and get in a little bit of cardio, but that's the sum total. So anyway, I, w- what should women who are in this age range and want to be active and sort of combat this process as much as they can, what should they be doing? Staying out of that moderate intensity zone, so that gray zone that everyone kind of falls into, I really need to learn how to polarize the training. So if you're doing cardio, it's that sprint interval or this really true high intensity interval training. It's dropping the volume and focusing on intensity. And the reason for that is women are already really endurant. Like we're born with more slow twitch fibers. We can recover from submaximal stuff faster than men. And we have more protein in the mitochondria for burning free fatty acids. So our bodies are built to go long and slow. So we look at what are we doing when those hormones flatline? We need to find an external stress that's going to take the place of those hormones in a positive manner. So we need to polarize the training. If we're talking about resistance training, and I'm you know, now notorious for saying lift heavy shit, because we need that power behind the resistance training to stimulate the way estrogen used to stimulate the actin part of the actin myosin chain. Women also do way better with strength and power resistance training, regardless of age, but really critical when these hormones start to fluctuate to focus on strength and power development because we need to maintain fast twitch. We need to maintain that neuromuscular connectivity for that strong muscle contraction. Otherwise, we are predisposed to sarcopenia because of the way that our bodies are deteriorating. And sarcopenia is loss of lean muscle muscle tissue. Yeah, and putting more fat in where the muscle used to be. So that 
cardiovascular stuff, that moderate intensity, it doesn't have the right kind of stress to be able to support what our bodies need. So when you're saying polarization, let me just clarify everyone. One is that making sure that if you're in this category of person right now, one is you're saying higher intensity and some loading. But what's the other side? What's the polarization? What's the other side of that then? Super low, low, embarrassingly slow recovery type stuff. So if you really enjoy your Peloton and you're doing, um, you know, like your, your sit training on the Peloton, then the next day, maybe you're doing 50% of what you normally do with regards to RPE or intensity. So super duper, duper slow. If you're a runner, it's like embarrassingly slow where power walkers could pass you. And it's all about the recovery aspect. It's not about how long you're out there. It's about enjoying that really low end recovery. And when we're looking at resistance training, if you're doing the high intensity resistance training, so it's low volume, heavy weight, then on the low end of stuff, you're looking at mobility, functional stuff. How is your technique under the bar? So it's really looking at the two different days and how are you stacking those? So we do two high intensity days and then we really drop it down and do super, super easy, then maybe a moderate and then another super easy. And so we have two hard days and then super easy, moderate, really two hard days. So it's really looking at how are we really looking at the week to have that high intensity work, the body adapts and responds to it and recovers from it. And then we give that stimulus again. So I still, um, you know, obviously I live partly in the CrossFit world where, you know, people are not afraid to lift heavy shit and interact with barbells and lift stuff. But I also, you know, I'm a mom and I have lots of friends who, you know, like to Peloton and whatever, but I think sometimes there's this like, okay, well, I went to my spinning class and I did some one pound weight curls while I was at my spinning class. Would that kind of work qualify? Um, And also I would add yoga to that question. Would yoga qualify as the strength training of choice and, and, or like lifting one pound weights at a cardio class? No. Asking for a friend. Asking Asking for a friend. And not me. (laughs) Yeah, not you. Absolutely not. Like we had this conversation about one of the influencers that it's always about, don't lift more than one pound, pick the pink dumbbells. It's like, no, that's absolutely not what we're talking about. If you are new to resistance training, then yeah, maybe one pound is heavy to you, but that is not heavy enough to get the stress that we need when our hormones start to fluctuate. And there is this huge lack of confidence in this age group because we grew up with Jane Fonda. We grew up with Kate Moss and the supermodels and no muscle tone and calories in, calories out. And so that's the the undercurrent and the mentality that a lot of women have in this age group. And if you go to a gym when, you know, you get the intake form, right? And it says, what are your goals? And most women say to lose weight. And that's the automatic signal to show you to the cardiovascular area, right? The cardio equipment, the elliptical, but it's not any bells to say, here's the resistance training. Let's bring you to the squat rack and move the guys out of the way. Or if you go in, right? And it's very like squat rack, weight room, very much the very back corner of the gym and all the cardiovascular machines in the front. So it's perpetuating those images that women need to be doing cardiovascular work. So it's the big push for us in the in the field of fitness to push women to beyond their comfort zone to pick up a barbell. 
And maybe a 15 kilo barbell is heavy for them. And you can lift it five times with really good form. Sweet. That's heavy lifting at this moment in time. But we need to get the idea away that doing heavy gear work on the bike is going to be resistance training or lifting up a one pound dumbbell is resistance training. And sorry, could I just have you comment on the yoga question, which by the way, I'm a fan of yoga, so Mm -hmm. I'm not trying to down on yoga, but I mean, are people getting, is yoga the resistance training that That could be the zone one, zone two recovery to recovery? Please speak to that. Cause I, I will say, I know a lot of people are like, I did my workout. I did my strength building. I went to yoga and I'm always like side head. Hey, your elitism is showing. Sorry. No, no, it's all right. I agree. No, yoga is good for that zone one recovery stuff. It's really good for balance and coordination, which we need to work on. But again, it's not the stimulus that we're looking for to promote lean mass development and reduce that visceral or that deep abdominal fat gain. The other aspect about heavy resistance training is it causes what we call an epigenetic change in the muscle so that you don't have to rely as much on insulin to pull sugar in because women become more insulin resistant when they are going through perimenopause. So there's a whole cascade of things that happen when you are looking at heavy dumbbells, heavy barbells. And it's it's really super important that we break down that barrier and make people, especially women in this age group, comfortable to lift heavy and push into what it means to do true resistance training. There's so, This is going to be the most important podcast. I'm going to have to go back and listen to this over and over and over again. As men age, there's something called HRT, hormone replacement therapy, or TRT, testosterone replacement therapy. But I heard you say something different. You said menopause hormone therapy. Yeah. I think that is the first time I have ever heard that phrase. And I'm not a dullard, and I'm sort of in the world deeply obsessed with all of this. Mm -hmm. Why is that not a phrase that we've ever heard before or talked about before? That's a good question. I learned it way back when I was working with Marcia Stefanik at Stanford. And it stems from the fact that we're not replacing hormones because the exogenous hormones through menopause hormone therapy do not do the same thing as natural hormones. Their molecular structure is different. They're not something that you gravitate towards for improving body composition. They might slow the rate of lean mass loss, but it does not perpetuate the same thing that estrogen does with regards to muscle development and changing body composition. So people have in their head that if I take hormone replacement therapy or HRT, then I'm good to go and I'm not going to have all these changes. And that's absolutely not true. There's a time and a place for menopause hormone therapy. It is a therapeutic agent to help you get through vasomotor symptoms, night sweats, vaginal dryness, all of the issues that you have that affect quality of life, but it's not replacing your natural hormones. I think that's really helpful to know. And and I think maybe you said, although I think a lot of women I know, their chief complaint around menopause is weight gain. Mm-hmm. And I think there is, and, and I think it's partly because there's so much misinformation and non-information in this category that that there's sort of an idea that if you take hormone therapy, you're like, sweet, I'll be good. And I won't, like, that'll fix my weight gain problems. And Right, I'll be good. And I, it sounds like you're saying not really, like it might help in the short term solve and some other issues. You can like, see that women step on this rake yeah. of the conditioning where you're, Chief complaint is my body composition is changing as I go through menopause or perimenopause, and then I fall right back into the traps of calorie restriction, yep. disordered eating. Don't eat a carb. Right. Yeah. Plus, don't eat, right, because carbs are bad. And then yeah. all of a sudden you, and then 
add in the fact that people are not sleeping, which I want to talk more about. Mm -hmm. And then we go right reach for the cardio and we're, it's like a hot mess, isn't it? I know. It's totally like, I can, I have in my head the typical woman who's not informed, right? She's freaking out about body composition. She's having vasomotor symptoms. She goes to her doctor who knows a little bit and the doctor's like, let's put you on hormone therapy because that's going to help. It's going to help with everything. It's going to settle your anxiety. It's going to help you sleep. It's going to help with night sweats. It's going to help with body composition. And so she gets put on it and it helps with the night sweats. So then she sleeps better. If she sleeps better, then she has more motivation. If she has more motivation, then she can actually think about what kind of training she's doing. So if we think about hormone therapy in that perspective, then yeah, it's great. But she thinks automatically that the hormone therapy is what helps with the body composition because she doesn't put the steps together. No one tells her those steps that go together. So this is why we say, you know, menopause hormone therapy is good if your quality of life is affected by things like night sweats and vasomotor symptoms, because that interferes with quality of sleep. And Will you define vasomotor symptoms for folks? That's daily hot flashes. So it's that heat rising and sudden sweat and then and then you're you're freezing and, and you're shivering right after. I've never seen any women in my life do that. Yeah, right. I'm not looking at you, Jay. I'm just looking at all the women Lisa. in my life. <laughs> you're just, I'm just like, looking I've around. Never had I'm a like, I'm like are life? there women in like who have teenagers? I'm like, okay. You know, like we, I, we go to our local hangout group parties and people are talking massively about thermoregulation. Mm -hmm. And it's really disruptive. You were one of the first uh, people I talked with. We were on the sleep program, I think I was, because in a high performance, especially male-dominated society, but also children, if there's no sleep, we can't even tell what's going on. Exactly. And I, and I started to realize if we aren't sleeping, I can't even begin to understand your pain or your chronic pain or your persistent pain. There's just too much signal noise to really understand the get a good data. You started talking about that there were supplements women could take. Mm -hmm. Tart cherry was something that you talked about just a, a, literally a million years ago, like Stacey Sims, like level one was like, Stacey take some Sims tart cherry. 1.0. Are there some things or how should women begin to untangle this performance? Because you just really put all that together, it's a system. No system works by itself. No aspect of the body works by itself. Changing the ecosystem influences the whole person. So the, the sleep piece is something that people really struggle with. Have you changed the way you've thought about how you're helping people in transition or all athletes sleep? Or do you feel like there are different needs for people who are menopausal and perimenopausal? I'm a huge fan of adaptogens. Like I started studying them with, uh, with a colleague back at Stanford who was studying black cohosh for menopausal symptoms. And we were doing some research into vasomotor symptoms. And I started using them when I was doing all the Tour de France travel, but I never really thought about, oh, how beneficial it could be for anyone else. But we look at adaptogens like ashwagandha and MAC are massively um, helpful with this whole perimenopausal like transition and using things like DEM, which is the, you know, the key ingredient in all your broccoli yeah, greens, and like broccoli and stuff. Yeah. And cauliflower, right. Cause it helps with estrogen metabolism. So if you're thinking about, I'm highly stressed and I have this fluctuation of hormones and high cortisol, well, we put you on ashwagandha because ashwagandha is an herb that directly inter interrelates with your HPA. So your cortisol might, you might 
still produce as much cortisol, but your body doesn't respond to it in the same way because the ashwagandha attaches to some of those receptor sites. So your body isn't as stimulated by it. So it helps you with parasympathetic response, helps you relax, helps with anxiety. And it also helps with um, balancing out estrogen progesterone. So that's like the first one. MACA has some really good peer review that if you're using MACA on a regular basis, it does pretty much the same thing as, as menopause hormone therapy with regards to vasomotor symptoms and night sweats and the inability to sleep and having that anxiety. So these are some of the things that we really try to get people to, to use first before they be all end all go to hormone therapy. And don't worry, everyone, all of this is in this brand new book by Stacey Sims. You're, you're taking frantic notes. I, everyone over here, we've all got pages of notes going on, but it's all written down for you. Yeah. And my husband's favorite one is Holy Basil because he comes from, you know, his favorite uncle was a priest. who's like, Holy Basil. And <laughs> so if anyone remembers it, it's Tulsi, Holy Basil. And this one is really fantastic for the whole encompassing like aspect of brain fog, of um, fluctuations of estrogen, estrogen dominance, inability to sleep, the lack of mojo. So it's like, let's start with ashwagandha. Let's start with maca. Let's start with Holy Basil. And then we'll see how you go. It takes about three weeks for everything to come up and work well, because it's not something that is a drug. It doesn't directly go in and interfere. It actually works with your body's system. So it upregulates and downregulates the way your body responds to hormones. So if you don't have enough estrogen, then it makes your estrogen receptors more sensitive to the estrogen that you do have. So that's how it moderates some of these aspects that we have in this menopause transition. Amazing. So I just want to go back to the food thing as sort of a tale on the intermittent fasting, because I know you have an entire chapter in your book called Eat Enough. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm assuming eating carbohydrates is part of that recommendation. But I'd love for you to talk about that because, you know, I, I will say that having been an early CrossFit person, I still am sort of like, like I, I intellectually know that I should eat carbohydrates, but I'm definitely always like, ah, carbs. So, <laughs> hey, you know, asking for a friend, yeah. I don't know, you know, I just get stuck in that mental rut of like carbohydrates, bad. Yeah. But, you know, do you, I, I guess the question is again, because I think so for so many women, the chief complaint is like weight gain and not having the body composition they want. And my guess is a lot of women are trying to solve that by calorie restriction or carb restriction or restriction, restriction or juice cleanses or intermittent fasting or whatever. Um, and it sounds like maybe that's sort of akin to like, you know, banging your head against the wall. Like, is that often just going to be counterproductive for women? Do you just talk a little bit about, am I on the right track there at all? Yeah, absolutely. Um, carbohydrates, super essential. Essential. It's the as we get into this transition again, it's the timing of nutrition and carbohydrates. So, the types of carbohydrate we need to be a bit mindful of, and we want to go more for fruit, veg, whole grains, for two reasons. One, women are more insulin resistant, so those types of carbohydrates are better for insulin resistance. But other is gut microbiome. So we have sleep disturbances, we have high stress, and we have other things that actually change gut microbiome. So if we're eating carbohydrate from fruit and veg and whole grains, then we actually have the prebiotic type fibers that feed the gut, which encourages the growth of the bacteriotes type phyla that encourages lean mass development and keeping you lean. So it's a, it's a one-two hit. Don't be afraid of carbohydrate because we need it. Our body needs it, especially in this 
time where we have a higher sympathetic drive, we're under a lot of stress and our body is like need carbohydrate to help attenuate that. And then the other is we really need to take care of our gut microbiome because of that additional stress, the gut is undergoing a lot of changes. And if that isn't taken care of, then it perpetuates the poor sleep, perpetuates the anxiety, perpetuates that sympathetic drive. Did you just see that there was a study that just came out? I think uh, Galpin put it up where they took some of the strains of gut microbiome from an Olympic gold medalist, mm -hmm. and it turned out to be very useful. <laughs> so as a transplant, I was like, oh, here comes the, the fecal transplant, oh, gut yes. transplant, let's train, let's go. Yeah, I know. I read that too. And I was like, yeah, interesting, because it could also go the other way. Yeah, I think it was done on mice is what it was. Just so we're clear, don't 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 get too don't excited. knock on the door of your Olympic gold medalist. Okay, so um, can, can I ask another question? Oh yeah, go okay. ahead. So um, I'm, a, I'm just on this train. So I'm kind of on this tip only because I just got a DEXA scan and I'm oh, giving yay. myself a high ten because apparently to be like on Off the, the chart, chart you had to have like the high from my age was two point five, and I was a three point five. Whoop whoop. Yeah. And so, but I know that that, um, and I know that is entirely because I have been lifting a weight for my entire life, mm -hmm. but can you talk a little bit, because I, I think we all went through like the early 2000s phase of like, let's eat 5,000, um, calcium chocolates and Vivactin. Sort of, uh, yeah, Vivactin yeah. and we like had the supplement thing. And I, if I'm not mistaken, like taking calcium and other supplements for protecting your skeleton has been like 100% debunked. And like the yeah. only way to protect your skeleton is to lift a weight. I mean, I don't know if I'm oversimplifying, please elaborate. So, so we're talking about bone density here. Yeah, bone, bone density. density. Yeah, bone density. So yeah, taking supplemental calcium doesn't do anything. And you need estrogen, natural estrogen, calcium from food, and vitamin D to really interact. And again, when you start losing estrogen, it's like, okay, what do I do? Jump training. So it's lifting heavy, but plyometric jump training. There's some really fantastic new research that shows 10 minutes of jumping three times a week is such a, a massive stimulus for bone turnover and maintaining and building bone density that it should be prescribed. Like physicians should be prescribing this. And it doesn't mean you have to go do, you know, 30 inch box jumps. It can be jumping off a stair. It can be doing star jumps in your living room, but that multi-directional stress of jumping is really super important because the different impact forces create the stimulus for bone mineral density. Running, no, it doesn't do it. It's not multi-directional. Trail running, no. People are like, but I trail run and it's multi-directional. No, it's not the right kind of stress. You need the impact force of the ground from jumping to stimulate that as well as heavy resistance training. What about jump roping? Yeah, you can do that okay. too. We're just huge fans of jump roping. So I just was, you know, I was looking for a seal of approval there. Yeah. It's in our, it's in our new book. We just yeah. turned in the manuscript. Yeah, I was like, we late. just turned in the manuscript and roping. said people should jump rope. So yeah, well, you know, it's, yeah. uh, there is an old saying. I think uh, there's this group of people called, uh, there were former Soviet uh, sports research. They say, when you stop jumping, you start dying. Ah, I like that. It's funny that there's always a Russian saying that there's almost a Russian saying for everything in your life. This wise calf that nurses from two mothers. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Okay. Well, here, here's something. The preeminent expert in sex differences in sport, period. Oh. As you have sort of gone down this rabbit hole of, of trying to simplify this really complex 
changes in human physiology, which is the most complex system in the known universe. The brain is the most complex structure attached to really complex physiology. What surprised you about trying to come up with a blueprint or, or things that we were getting right or wrong? And writing in this book, were there any surprises for you? That's a good question. I don't know. I would say more of the research that's been done on menopause hormone therapy, because I come from the whole line of women's health initiative where it was a big scare. But as we started looking at the newer research and understanding what's going on and the earlier you started, there is no risk. But the other thing that was surprising and really interesting is resistance training on prevention of dementia. So if you have family history of dementia and women start become very concerned because they start getting brain fog and they're like, oh gosh, my grandmother has dementia and Alzheimer's. What am I going to do for my brain health? So you, you hear about aerobic exercise really helping because it helps with the frontal lobe growth, but resistance training has a really unique pathway, cascade pathway that encourages nerve growth and neural growth. And it's really super beneficial for prevention of Alzheimer's and dementia. So we start that and early, right? And when people get into the menopause transition and I start talking about heavy lifting, it's not just for muscles, but it's also for brain health, for having that quality of life and remembering where you put your keys when you're 95 years old. And can I just, um, for, for emphasis, say that resistance training equals lifting heavy weights? Yes, thank okay. you. Thank you. Um, Just for emphasis. When we before Asterisk. we started before we started chatting, you were like, "I wish I had taken this supplement earlier in life." Could yes. you talk about what that was, and then back into as people are, you know, let's just say that you're in your twenties and thirties. How can we set ourselves up for success for aging? It's so difficult to put bone mass back on. Yeah, when you're especially if you've tinkered with your neuroendocrine system as a, as an earlier person, you've had an eating problem or you're a sport watching your weight or any of the thousand other reasons you can roll into your toys and thirties, sort of not well prepared for these changes. What are some of the things that we should be doing as we're prepping? Because I mean, is really aging, does it begin? Or if I'm going to be in my forties and fifties as a woman, should I be thinking about that in my twenties and thirties and can I, and then were there some things that you were going to take if you wish you could have taken earlier? Yeah. So the thing about aging is that men age in a linear fashion. So everything we know from aging research is based on that linear projection that a lot of, well, most men have. Um, but women, we age definitively at this menopausal transition. So we start seeing this whole cascade of events. If we are in our 30s, we have to have our eye towards what's happening in our 40s. It's going to be completely different, but not to be fearful of it, but to start putting into play some of the steps that we would do in our 40s. So it's putting the emphasis on intensity and resistance training less on volume. Of course, there are people like, but my sole food is to go for a long ride or a long run or a long hike. Yeah, sweet. That's good. But don't make that your everyday mainstay. Like you have to really think about polarizing. You have to think about what is high intensity, learning what that high intensity is. So then when you get into your 40s, it's easier to navigate because you're not going to have as many changes to your body because you've already put those steps into play. We talk about like supplementation and what we should do to supplement. We know that after the age of 30, you really start to have a decline in your collagen. 
And we see this apparently in in the menopause transition because we have stiffer tissues, which I'm sure you guys are more aware of, and sore joints and um, a lot of systemic inflammation. So if we start loading up on collagen early, early, then we can attenuate the decline that we see in collagen and we can still support our tissues and, and maintain joint health. But it's also looking at taking native and peptide together because they're, they act differently in the body. So if we look at native, it doesn't get digested, but causes an immune response that automatically creates an environment that stops the degeneration of cartilage and stops the degeneration. When you say native, you were like bone broth, bone marrow, offal, connective tissue, eating your, you know, cooking your meat on a stick. Is that what you're talking about? And by stick, I mean bones. Is that what you mean? Yeah. So you're looking at collagen that hasn't been broken down. So if it is in bone broth or if you are eating bones and fish, then you're not really going to digest the the whole collagen that's in there, but your body's going to respond with an immune response to stop breaking down your own cartilage and stop breaking down your collagen. But then you have peptides, which is the broken down parts of collagen that you get as supplements. And that's digested and it's a target tissue response where it will directly go to, like if you have the type twos, they go to cartilage and they start signaling the body to rebuilding and start rebuilding the collagen associated with that. So we have to think about what kinds of collagen that we're ingesting. Yeah, I feel like really. as I get older, it is all about connective tissue health for me. Like that yeah. is the game. Yeah, like everything else, I'm like, that's nice, cute. I have some quads. Can I talk about the the tissues connecting my quads to everything else? I mean, I feel like that is going to be the the money play. Totally. Yeah. Check out the connective tissue on that person. <laughs> Sexy. <laughs> and and I think you also <laughs> said something earlier about creatine. Yes. Yes, for sure. So women have. Uh, about 70, 80% less creatine storage and availability than men. And we start losing it. And it's also a menstrual cycle effect. So we know that in the low hormone phase, follicular phase, we use a lot of creatine. There's a high or actually a low response with CK. But in the high hormone phase, our body is using it not for muscle and brain energetics, but to build that endometrial lining. So if we're looking at supplementing with creatine to help with fast energetics and brain health, we want to supplement in the high hormone phase so that our body will actually be able to put it to use rather than trying to use it in the low hormone phase where it's like, yeah, we might store it. But if that's too complicated, just take three to five grams every day, not loading up, just that really small dose because it goes and helps every tissue of the body that has fast energetics. So you're thinking brain, gut, heart, muscle, all that kind of stuff. Wouldn't it be more fun to go back to the 90s and, and take it with all that sugar? We had to like load creatine with just massive amounts of carbohydrate. Drink it through our red vine straw. Yeah, it was uh, <laughs> EA Athletics, remember? It was like, it was, um, you had to drink, it was like thousands of grams of carbohydrate to load your, your creatine. To get a little bit of creatine. Yeah. You know, so I've got a question here, which I probably should have asked at the beginning of this podcast. So um, 50% of people didn't turn it off and decide it wasn't for them. But um, of course, many men will have a partner who's a woman who goes through all of these changes. And I mean, I don't know if this is a chapter in your book, probably not your target audience, but like, what should men know about this? Everything. Uh, right. Yeah. I mean, uh, other than everything we said, but like, what should they know about it in terms of like how to be a partner to a person? And, and let me dovetail like on that. This, if you're a, a coach, not yeah, only should coaches. you, if you're a coach at all, you should read Roar because 50, if you're not 
thinking about the sex differences, you're a shitty coach. I just said the word. So we're even. Second is that if you're working with a woman over 45, you, you said the word once before. Oh. So if you're, but if you're working with a woman over 45 or perimenopause, whenever that happens and you don't understand, you are part of the problem also. So, yeah. I mean, this, this affects a lot of people, your question. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I'm really surprised at how many men like take my courses or come into the Facebook lives or Instagram lives and listen to the podcasts because they're really interested in helping their wives and partners and their daughters. And at the at summit, there was a guy who was in tears. He's like, every time I hear you speak, I get tears in my eyes because I think of my daughter and my wife. And now I know how to help them. And it's that conversation and that push. It's like, don't tune out if you're a guy because you have a mother. At some point you had a mother. You probably have some partner or a sister or a daughter or a best friend or a best friend's wife that is going to have questions and go through this. So it isn't like put your head in the sand it is understand what's going on to be supportive. And it's not a massive amount of literature. It's just understand the fact that she is going to go through this and don't put her in the the early 1900s insane asylum because you don't know what you're doing. No, no, seriously, that that womb just wanders around the body. So I, mean, I find it underneath the bed sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, speaking of insane asylum, I think there's sort of an area that I would love you to cover a little bit. And this is anecdotal from, again, people I know asking for a friend. But I do think a lot of women actually feel crazy during this time. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And again, often aren't getting the right support they need from the medical community who are like, there's nothing wrong with you. We've done your blood work and you're fine. And and yet they're like, wow, I actually feel crazy. What's going on there? And and is that like a short term passing thing? And, you know, once they pass to the other side of menopause, they're going to like wake back up and be like, hello, I'm back. Yeah. Or, you know, what's how do how do they how do people frame this? And what kind of who do they reach out to for support? And, you know, what's what what do people do? Yeah, so I, crazy. Yeah, I brought up the insane asylum because women actually were put there because yeah. of yeah. all of the craziness that happens in menopause. Probably by the Sacklers. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, I just finished that book. So. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> good, good popular reference. But when you're having fluctuations of estrogen and progesterone, they cross blood-brain barrier, so they cross the BBB and they interfere with your neurotransmitters. So if you have a huge upsurgence of estrogen because of estrogen dominance, it crosses the BBB and you end up with a lot of hyperactivity of serotonin. And then you have a huge serotonin dump after estrogen starts to go down. So that causes a lot of depression and anxiety. And you also have a down regulation of dopamine. So you're not going to get that feel good feeling because you don't have as much dopamine. So when you're starting to feel crazy and anxious and really this intense rage that you didn't know that you ever had in your life and you're just like click of a switch, you feel like you're going crazy. It's because of the way the hormones are interfering with the neurotransmitters. And again, you can work with um, brain specialists. You can really look to adaptogens because they are really fantastic at mitigating those neurotransmitter changes. And if you're really struggling with all of these brain symptoms of brain fog, severe mood changes, feeling crazy, the first step is looking at using an SSRI, so serotonin reuptake inhibitor, not necessarily for anxiety and depression, but they also help with all the other symptoms. They help with vasomotor symptoms, night sweats, as well as all the crazy mood swings. And if that still doesn't help, then you talk to an endocrinologist who can specifically look at what kind of hormone therapy to use. But after you get through the transition, 
you're like found yourself again. You're like, hey, I'm back. Uh, amazing. Okay. When does this book come out? What's it called? Can people order it yesterday? Can I buy it? Can I buy just five copies? Can we for, buy a box? I know. I just really, I'm like, wow, I just, I know all of these women who oh, I mean, we've I have been like waiting 50 for 50 people I could pass it out to today. Um, it comes out on the 17th of May. And yes, you can pre-order it. And yeah, it's called Next Level, the guide to kicking ass through menopause, transition, and beyond. Uh, amazing. Um, you hinted at... And I get all your emails, so I know what's going on. But you do a lot of teaching. You have some courses. You have support. Can you talk, just direct people in those directions? The book, both of your books are going to be yeah, like gold standard reads. resources. Must they're must-reads. Can you also direct people to where we can find you in the uh, the digital the course space? Because people, I don't think, want to wait. And I also think they want to, you have uncovered just gold. So where can people learn more about gold? Uh, on the the old digi platforms of Facebook and Instagram, Dr. Stacy Sims, and we post stuff every day about it. Not necessarily menopause, but all the stuff. And then um, drstacysims.com, you can see all the different courses, everything that's coming up, podcasts, besides this one, but yours is always at the top because I love talking to you guys. Literature that I'm, you know, publishing, all the stuff, all the stuff that my fingers are into are on the website. And there's a lot of stuff. I mean, you are, uh, you have an amazing partner, you're a busy working mother, and you are uh, one of the sharpest knives I know. So uh, it is always a pleasure to, to get caught up with you. And now that they've let New Zealand open a little bit, maybe we can finally come down and, and yes. hang out with you a bit. Yes. Stacy, we are such gigantic, huge fans of yours. And I'm serious when I say I'm like cruising around all the time saying, Stacy Sims said to do this and Stacy Sims said not to do that. And so, you know, even people who don't know you know you. Yeah. Um, so Thanks. thank you so much for, and we are like, I really cannot emphasize how excited we are about this book. Like it is way overdue and so many people are going to benefit from it massively. And as a coach, uh, you know, who works with a lot of women sometimes, I'm just like, oh, one well, of my friends has solved this problem for me. So <laughs> go check out Stacey Sims and then call me after. <laughs> Read her entire book and then call me. Yeah. Stacey, <laughs> thank you so much. Safe travels. And uh, thanks for being the first repeat guest on The Ready State. Oh, thanks for having me. It's great to, great to chat and share information. Thank you for listening to the Ready State Podcast. If you like what you're hearing, check out all our episodes here or at thereadystate.com. And be sure to subscribe and leave a review on iTunes to help others find our show. Check us out and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at The Ready State. Until next time, cheers, everyone. You got it.